Welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. This is the morning session of Sunday the 4th of January 2009, entitled, For Such a Time as This. And the Bible reading is taken from Esther, chapter 4, verses 10 to 17. Here's Pastor Larry T. Curtis. I invite you to stand with me as we read from Esther chapter 4. We'll begin reading in verse 10 and read through verse 17. Again, Esther spake unto Hatak and gave him commandment unto Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces do know that whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come unto the king into the inner court who is not called there is one law of his to put him to death, except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter that he may live. But I have not been called to come in unto the king these 30 days. And they told to Mordecai Esther's words. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Then Esther bade them return Mordecai this answer, Go, gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan, and fast ye for me, and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise, and so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish." So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. Father, we do thank you, Lord, for, Lord, so very much for life itself, for health and strength to be here today. Father, we thank you for reaching down one day and saving our souls. We thank you, Lord, for your strength that is never failing. Father, as we look into your word once again this morning, we thank you for your word as well as your spirit that lives within. Lord, we pray that you would give us added strength this day. We pray, Lord, that you would take and speak the words that, Lord, would find a resting place in each heart here today. Lord, you know each need. You know each individual better than we know ourselves. We pray that during this time that we gather together to worship you, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, that our hearts and our very beings would be receptive to all that you ask of us. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. As Brother Steve mentioned, I think, if you were here on Wednesday night, we looked at a simple thought as we were looking at coming into the new year of basically how to handle every situation. Every situation. Some will be good, some will be bad, some will be hard, some will be easy. But we find in the Word of God when Jesus Christ himself spoke a parable for this end, for this purpose. Men ought always to pray and not faint. 
not lose heart. In every situation, there is absolutely nothing that will be of more good to you in this coming year than if you turn to God with each and every one of them. With that thought in mind, and we'll allude back to a couple of things there, but we cannot overstate the importance of prayer in a Christian's life. I made the statement on Wednesday night that it's not the great theological things that tend to allow us or cause us to stumble in our Christian lives. It's the small things. And often, not the small things even that we do, but the small things that we don't do. And we find we hear these things and we all know these things, the importance of God's Word. We were challenged on Wednesday night to put forth the effort of reading the Bible through in a year. Three chapters a day, five on Sunday. You read the entire Word of God through in a year. And the importance of prayer. The importance of prayer. The importance of being in communication, in contact with God on everything. As we look around today at what we oftentimes would refer to as our Christian nations, certainly oftentimes Britain and America probably more than others are referred to as Christian nations. But as we look at these so-called Christian nations in which we live, what do we see? What do we see? What has happened? You see, the truth is, as much as we would like to, is it not really a joke to call our nations by the name of Christian be Christ-like, oh, as Christians, we would like to think that our nations are Christian, but in essence, that is not a very good description of what we see or where we are. And we might ask ourselves, what real hope is there? When we look around us and we see even those countries who for many years have been proudly atheistic, communistic societies where that God was not even allowed, where God was no part of them. As we see many of those powers crumble. But ironically, we see the people in those countries hungry, for the Word of God. I remember reading an account that took place in, in, in Russia some years back, shortly after the wall came down between East and West Germany. And there was a distribution taking place there of some 50,000 Bibles. And the truth is, is that there were traffic jams in every direction <laughs> because so many people were desperate to get their hands on the Bible, on the Word of God. The truth is, is that we seem to be bent and determined 
to follow the foolish and fatal path of unbelief, of godlessness, of secularism, of a path where God has no part whatsoever. History has shown us time and again where the godless societies of this world end up and how that God's hand of providence has preserved his people time and time again when it seemed that everything around them was determined to destroy them. We may ask ourselves just what kind of a world, what kind of a society are we going to leave our children if the Lord tarries? Our simple thought this morning as we look at a few things from the book of Esther for such a time as this, where's the hope? For such a time as this, where you and I are right now, where's the hope? The name may not mean as much to many of you here this morning, but it's a name that is very well known in American history. The name is Patrick Henry. Of course, Patrick Henry, Henry was one of the early Christian patriots. He had a father that immigrated to the new colonies from Scotland, his mother from England. He was born there. He was sometimes referred to as the golden-tongued orator of the revolutionary era. He said this in his will. He said, I have now disposed of all my property to my family. There is one more thing I wish I could give to them. That is the Christian religion. If they had that and I had not given them one shilling, they would have been rich. And if they had not had that and I had given them the world, they would be poor. And you know, there's so much truth in that. What are we going to leave for our children? You see, I can't stand here this morning and I can't tell any one of you what the future holds. I can't even stand here this morning and tell you what the destiny is of our nation. But I can tell you that there is hope for God's people. There is always hope for God's people. Regardless of what society does, regardless of the situations and the circumstances and all that takes place around us. You see, that's another thing that history has shown us. History has shown us that God's promises never fail. God's promises again and again in His Word to preserve His people hold so true. I can't tell you if there's hope for our nations, but I can tell you this, that if there is any hope for this nation or any other nation, it lies in the hands of God, and it lies in the hands of God's people. The hope of our nations comes with a great responsibility to God's people, 
You see, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16, He said, Ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. The book of Esther, as we look this morning, is a great illustration of the great truth of hope for God's people, of God's preservation amidst and against even the greatest odds. Though God is not one time mentioned by name in the book of Esther, the only book in the Bible, along with the Song of Solomon, that God is not mentioned somewhere. But yet he is clearly seen. And he's seen fulfilling his promise to his people. And it's also a great illustration of where the hope lies. Not just for an individual that belongs to God, but for a nation of people. As he works through those individuals to see his will accomplished. As I've said, the book of Esther is only 10 chapters. It doesn't take long to sit down and to read it through. We find that it's one of the latest historical books that we have in giving us the history of the nation of Israel before that we have the approximately 400 years of silence between the Old and the New Testament. It's what we refer to historically as the Persian period when the Persian Empire was reigning we find as we begin in this book that King Ahasuerus was on his throne. And his wife, the queen, queen, queen Vashti, he was throwing a big party, a big festival, and he commanded that Queen Vashti be brought into the party, and she refused. The Bible doesn't tell us why. Some think it was for good reason. That probably had she come there that she would have been required to danced lewdly before a bunch of men that had already well past been, been drinking too much. Or some historians believe that the timing was probably about the time that she was carrying a child, or Texas, who would eventually take over the throne from his father. We don't know. But we know that when she refused to come, they came and they, they told King Ahasuerus, they said, wow, you know, what are the people going to think? What are the women of our nation going to do? Why, if the queen herself is insubordinate and doesn't obey her husband, the king, why, all these women are just going to rebel against their husbands and we're going to have chaos through the land. We've got to make an example of her. That's exactly what King Ahasuerus does. He dethrones Vashti. And he sends out his men to look for all the beautiful virgins in the country. And amongst them, he's going to choose a new queen. And in the end, it is Esther that he chooses to be 
his queen. Now Esther was the younger cousin of a man called Mordecai. Mordecai had taken Esther to raise her as his own daughter when his uncle, which would have been her dad, had died and left. And of course, Esther was without parents. And so he took her and he raised her as his own. We find that Mordecai and Esther, at his insistence, had kept the fact completely secret that they were Jewish. The society, the people around them did not know that they were Jews. In the last verse of chapter 2, we see Mordecai's loyalty to the king. When he sends word through Esther, who is now the queen, of a plot that has been set that he hears about at the gate, planning to kill the king. Then we see in chapter 3, we see Haman. Haman's promotion to a position of real power. And when Haman is promoted to this position of power, everybody is commanded to bow down and to reverence this man called Haman. But Mordecai refuses. He's not about to bow down. He's not about to reverence Haman. And of course, word gets back to Haman and Haman works up this cunning decree with the, uh, with the king that in essence is his plan to have all the Jews in the entire land completely annihilated, completely wiped out to where none of them are left. Now it's important to note here, folks, we've said many times the consequences, the consequences of disobeying God one time in the Garden of Eden and the consequences of all the death and sin and pain in this world, the consequences in any of our lives of even just one time disobeying God. You see, this was another trick of Satan. His object, to destroy the people of God to prevent the coming of Jesus Christ the Messiah, to prevent the fulfillment that God had made, the promise that he had made to Abraham about his seed. The hostilities between these two men go back nearly a thousand years. You see, the Bible tells us in Esther that Mordecai was a Benjamite. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, a descendant of King Saul. But Haman was an Agagite, which was a descendant of King Agag, which is where they got their name, who was the king of the Amalekites. Does that ring a bell? They were the descendants of Esau. And he goes right back to that time. We find that even after the descendants of Esau, the Amalekites, we find that even when they tried to destroy God's people in the past, and King Saul himself was ordered to destroy all of the Amalekites, including King Agag. But Saul disobeyed God. He did not. He did not destroy King Agag, and as a result, 
We know that Saul incurred the displeasure of God and that later Agag was hacked to pieces by Samuel instead. Now, there was some 550 years at least that had gone between the death of Agag and where these men are now. But the animosity between these two groups of people had not slackened. As a matter of fact, we look at what's happening right now. Even as we sit here this morning in the Middle East, we see what's happening with the nation of Israel right now. The animosities still haven't lessened between these people. They are still mortal enemies to the day that you and I live here now. Find that. There was no way in the world that Mordecai was going to bow down and reference this man called Haman who for generations had been his mortal enemy who now contrives to exterminate the entire Jewish race. Now, As we pick up in chapter 4 where we are here today and we read through the next few chapters, we see Esther's intervention. We see everything backfiring on Haman. We see Mordecai's rise to power, his prominence, Haman's fall, and ultimate destruction. We find in the end of the book, in chapters 8 through 10, the survival of God's people against all odds. We see their victory over their enemies, even when they were massively outnumbered. We see the celebrations that began with the introduction of the two-day festival called Purim, feasting, rejoicing, sending food to one another, giving of gifts to the poor, a festival that continues even to this day. You see, as is the case so many times, it appeared absolutely, completely, that the enemy had won. I mean, there appeared to be absolutely no hope whatsoever for God's people. As the saying goes, the enemy seemed to be holding all the cards. There was nowhere else, nowhere for God's people to turn. For such a time as this, when everything was against them, when all the power that could be mustered was there to wipe them out. Where's the hope for God's people? In the time that you and I live, as we look around us, and as we see our society gone to the depths that it's gone, we might wonder the same thing. For such a time as this, where's the hope for God's people? Verse 14 in our reading says, and this was, of course, words that were sent to Queen Esther from Mordecai. He said, For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance rise. Who? God's people. Their deliverance shall arise to the Jews from another place but thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom 
for such a time as this. Who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Sure, we could look around and we could get disheartened. We could lose heart. We could be discouraged. But I want you to know there is hope. There is always hope for God's people in such a time as this. The hope of God's people lies not in the circumstances, but in the hands of Almighty God. I repeat, I can't tell you what hope that there is for this nation or any nation today. But I do know that what hope there is for God's people, and I know that if there is any hope for this nation, it lies in the hands of God's people, not the godless society. I can tell you this, that God's plan will not under any circumstances against any powers that come against it. His plan will not be thwarted. If at this time you choose, as the warning was to Queen Esther, not to get involved, not to do your part, I promise you, God's plan will not be thwarted. God's plan doesn't depend upon me and it doesn't depend upon you. You see, the truth is God's plan will be fulfilled regardless. His people will be delivered. Even if it means at my cost or your cost or our destruction, even as the warning that went to Esther. Not God's choosing, but ours. You see, Mine and your responsibility is at this time. Where we are right now, we flip a new leaf on the calendar. We begin a new year. At this time, God has placed each and every one of us exactly where we are and exactly at this time. God's plan will be accomplished. Even if it costs us dearly, if we choose to hold our peace and not get involved and not do our part. You know, who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. God has you at this time for such a time as this for a reason. God could have placed you anywhere in history from the time that he first began with Adam to right now. Anywhere in there you could have been. But God has you here now for a reason. Who knows what that reason is? What difference can you make at this time? See, we can at least observe and learn a few things from Esther that I think are relevant not only for her time, but for such a time as this, for such a time as this that you and I live in, for such a time as this, first of all, folks, we need some courage. We need courage with God's people. Courage to be willing to speak up. I mean, notice that in this account, God's people were under the sentence of death. It was all done. It was sealed. Notice back in chapter 3, 
verse 8 and 9. And Haman said unto king Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the province of thy kingdom, and their laws are diverse from all people. How many today? How many today? <laughs> when we look around, they accuse us as God's people today of being different. <laughs> our laws, our rules being different from what society wants. Neither keep they the king's laws. Therefore, it is not for the king's profit to suffer them. If it please the king, let it be written that they may be destroyed and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver to the hands of those that have the charge of the business to bring it into the king's treasuries. <laughs> Haman was serious. <laughs> he not only was asking the king's permission, he was offering to pay for the whole thing to get rid of them. I'll get the reward. I'll put the money in the treasure that this deed can be accomplished. Folks, the plans were laid. The date was even set for when it was to take place. Everything was in motion. The gallows had even been built. We're on to hang Mordecai. No conceivable way whatsoever to see this not happening except the intervention of God Almighty. God works through people. Here was Mordecai and Esther that he's chose to use for such a time as that. What Mordecai was asking Esther to do, would it could cost her everything. I mean, it could cost her life. Just to come into the king's presence for a hearing without having been invited there would bring the death sentence. She was naturally afraid <laughs> And for good reason. She was fearful. We find that that's why that she first sends word back to Mordecai, verse 10 of chapter 4. And again, Esther spake unto Hatak and gave him commandment unto Mordecai, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces do know that whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come into the king into the inner court who is not called, there is one law of his to put him to death except to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter, that he may live. But I have not been called to come in unto the king these 30 days. They told to Mordecai Esther's words. I mean, basically, we might say today, send back word, you know, hey, you're just asking too much. You're asking too much of one person. This could cost me my life. It's too much of a risk. Notice in verse 13, Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews you think. That just because you choose to not get involved, to stand back, to not do anything about it, that you're going to be left untouched. You've got another thing coming. That's not going to happen, Esther. Don't think that you can escape. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance to the Jews from another place. It will arise from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed, and who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. 
today, may I say to you, maybe God's people have kept silent for too long. May I say to you today that as we look around us and see what our society is like, that maybe we're just reaping some of the fruits, not of our actions, but of our silence, of our silence. If we don't get involved, we will suffer loss. We're here for such a time as this. God has us here for such a time as this. I'm saying that we need to have the courage to speak up for God's truth regardless of the consequences and regardless of the reception of this world, even though that it may cost us everything. It's the consequences of not speaking up that should make us most fearful. We need the courage to speak up, and we need the courage to stand up. Oh, yes, it often takes courage to be willing to open our mouths and to say something, but there must be action to follow. We sang that great old hymn, Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus, Ye Soldiers of the Cross. I'm saying for such a time as this, we need a people of courage that are willing to speak up for God's truths, that are willing to speak up for God's laws, that are willing to stand up for what's right with God, that are willing to stand up for God's people, that are willing to be counted regardless of what they might think, even when it looks like all the odds are stacked against us, when everything is against us, when we could be completely and totally annihilated. Our orders have come from our commander-in-chief. God alone. It's been said that one of the greatest military geniuses that was ever produced was General Douglas MacArthur. For 50 years, he served as a soldier and served his country. You know what his words were after the conquering of Japan at the end of World War II? <laughs> it wasn't now it's time to bring in the, the tax collectors and collect all the taxes from those we've conquered. He said this. He said what was needed now was 10,000 missionaries for Japan. But you know what? The missionaries didn't go. We can look now and see how right that he was. Douglas MacArthur once made another astute observation that maybe shows the importance of morality to a nation. He said, history fails to record a single precedent in which nations subject to moral decay have not passed into political and economic decline. There has been either a spiritual awakening to overcome the moral lapse or a progressive deterioration leading to ultimate national disaster. Folks, history shows us over and over and over again. For such a time as this, if God's people could maybe just get a glimpse of what a real honor and privilege that it is in such a time as this to be able to serve on God's side, to be a part of His plan, a part of what He's wanting to do at this time. We're here at this time. Who knoweth? 
whether thou art come to the kingdom in such a time as this. Who knows what God wants to do with you right now. Do you know that we've got more missionaries right now than at any time in the history of mankind? Do you know that we've got more ease of access to get anywhere in the world? We've got more tools at our disposal to be able to use to get the truth to people. I'm saying we need to follow the example of Queen Esther. We need to have the courage to speak up and to stand up for God and for His people. God, in His perfect Plan. He's placed you and me right here at this time. For such a time as this, there is hope. But folks, we need not hide away. We need to have courage. We also need to have, I simply call it here, cooperation. <laughs> you see, in the next verse, in verse 15, then Esther bade them return Mordecai, this answer, notice what he says. Go, gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan and fast ye for me and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. For such a time as this, we need each other. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't be afraid to ask someone else to pray for you, to fast for you. The Bible says pray one for another. We need that coming together. Fasting and praying needs to be a, a regular part of our lives. God's never asked you as an individual to go out there and take on the whole world yourself. He said that all power is given to him. He said that he would go with you all the way even to the end of the world. He told us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but to exhort one another. And all the more, as you see, the day approaching. We discussed the importance of that prayer. That prayer in the coming year. We won't spend a lot of time there, but I want you to notice that here, Queen Esther knew she had made a choice. She had made a decision. At that time, for such a time as she was in, she was going to be willing to let God do what he needed to do through her. But she needed the cooperative prayers of those around her. Gather together all the Jews. All the Jews that are present. Get them all fasting over this matter. You see, we need courage. We need cooperation one with another. We also need, thirdly, consecration. You know another word for consecration? It's simply dedication. 
We need to be a dedicated people, a consecrated people. You see her next words after she asked for their fasting and their prayer, she says, I also and my maidens will fast likewise. She's not expecting somebody else to carry all the spiritual load for. She's going to spend time with God. She's going to spend that time that she needs to face what's before her. She wasn't asking them to do something that she wasn't willing to do herself. We need corporate prayer. We need it so very much, but that's not to replace our personal time of fasting and praying ourselves for such a time as this. Do you know it's the simple truth? If you look back, you'll not read the records of any revival in history that didn't begin somewhere, somehow, with somebody on their knees, on their face before God, praying. It doesn't come without prayer. No church is going to truly be what God wants it to be without prayer, personal and corporate together. It won't happen. Well, they can have big numbers, they can have big programs, they can have all these things. But a church that's going to accomplish the work of God for such a time as this is going to be a church and a people of prayer. A people that are willing to, to fast and push away the pleasures of this world and this flesh and spend that time with God, calling upon Him, the only one that can bring us that hope. You, we do have a hope such a time as this but our hope is in God we need a people of courage we need cooperation we need consecration and I want you to notice also there in verse 16 we need concern and so will I go in unto the king which is not according to the law now Queen Esther we see her weakness we see that she had to overcome some selfish fears. She had real apprehension in the beginning when she was first asked to do this thing. She naturally was afraid. But in the end, she was willing to put the welfare of others above her own. She was willing to go before the king, which was not a lawful thing. She was willing. What caused her to do that? We can call it concern. We can call it compassion. We talk about the state of our country. And we look around. And it's easy to visualize, but I ask us today, are we concerned? Are we concerned for our nation? What about the church? I genuinely believe one of the greatest problems in the church as a whole today is a lack of concern. A lack of concern for each other. A lack of concern for God's work. A lack of concern for lost souls. A lack of concern for spiritual growth. A lack of concern for our church. And the list could go on and on and on. Unfortunately, most of what we call Christendom out there today that we say is what makes us a Christian nation, if you were to give them a piece of paper and ask them to make a list of their greatest concerns tomorrow and the next day and day by day, and if they were honest about it, the things of God would not have the highest priority on their list. That's not the things that they are most concerned about. For such a time as this, 
God's people need to be concerned. As a matter of fact, as we look around us, we need to be very concerned, not fearful. Fearful and concerned are totally different things. We need to be genuinely concerned for each other, for God's work, for those lost souls, for that spiritual growth, for the church. We need to be genuinely concerned for our nation as a whole. And concern and compassion go hand in hand for such a time as this. We need to be concerned. Not afraid, but we need courage and we need cooperation and we need consecration. We need concern. And finally, I want to give you one other thing that we see in Queen Esther. For such a time as this, right now, we can look around us. We can see the joke of calling our nations Christian nations. We can see the jokes of what many call themselves as a church today, and what many call themselves as Christians today. For such a time as this, who knows? Who knows why God has brought you into the kingdom at this time? For such a time as this, what does God want to do with you, with this church, right now, at this time? You see, there is hope. That hope is in God. And if there is hope for this nation, for this church, the hope lies in the hands of God's people, not the world. God needs a people of commitment. Commitment. Do you notice her last words there in verse 16? If I perish, I perish. That's a pretty strong commitment. <laughs> if I perish, I perish. You see, she had reached a point. Though she started out with the same frailties that you and I have, the same fears, she had reached a point where she was fully committed to what God needed from her at that time. I'm going to go before the king, even though that it's unlawful. And if I perish, I perish. I'm going to do what God needs done. I'm going to do what God wants me to do. Whatever the cost, not to do that, the consequences are far worse. No price is too high. If it costs her her life, so be it. I'm afraid that commitment is something that's in pretty short supply among most of God's people today. People say they're committed Christians. It's a term that's tossed around so much. But their actions show very different. It shows them being committed to an awful lot of things except the Word of God. Verse 17 says, So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. Did according to all. I think that we can safely say that they were both committed to what needed to be done. I don't even know who to, uh, to give credit to who wrote this. I think I read it here once before some long while back came in an email that says this, I am a soldier 
in the army of my God. The Lord Jesus Christ is my commanding officer. The Holy Bible is my code of conduct. Faith, prayer, and the Word are my weapons of warfare. I've been taught by the Holy Spirit, trained by experience, tried by adversity, and tested by fire. I'm a volunteer in this army, and I'm enlisted for eternity. I will either retire in this army or at the rapture. I will either retire in this army at the rapture or die in this army. But I will not get out, sell out, be talked out, or pushed out. I'm faithful, reliable, capable, and dependable. If my God needs me, I'm there. If he needs me in Sunday school to teach children, work with the youth, keep adults, or just sit and learn, he can use me because I'm there. I'm a soldier. I'm not a baby. I do not need to be pampered, petted, primed up, pumped up, picked up, or pepped up. I'm a soldier. No one has to call me, remind me, write me, visit me, entice me, or lure me. I'm a soldier. I'm not a wimp. I'm in place, saluting my king, obeying his orders, praising his name, and building his kingdom. No one has to send me flowers, gifts, food, cards, candy, or give me handouts. I do not need to be cuddled, cradled, cared for, or catered to. I'm committed. I cannot have my feelings hurt bad enough to turn me around. I cannot be discouraged enough to turn me aside. I cannot lose enough to cause me to quit. When Jesus called me into this army, I had nothing. If I end up with nothing, I will still come out even. I win. My God will supply all my needs. I am more than a conqueror. I will always triumph. I can do all things through Christ. Devils cannot defeat me. People cannot disillusion me. Weather cannot weary me. Sickness cannot stop me. Battles cannot beat me. Money cannot buy me. Governments cannot silence me, and hell cannot handle me. I am a soldier. Even death cannot destroy me. For when my commander calls me from this battlefield, he will promote me to a captain and then bring me back to rule this world with him. I am a soldier in the army, and I am marching, claiming victory. I will not give up. I will not turn around. I am a soldier, marching heaven-bound. Here I stand. Will you stand with me? We find that for such a time as this, folks, there is hope. But that's the kind of commitment we need. God is still God. Is there hope for our world? Is there hope for our country? Is there hope for our city? Is there hope for our church? If there is hope, it lies with you and I, God's people. That's who God uses for such a time as this. We need commitment. We need God's people to be committed, truly committed to God, to God's people, to God's church, to God's work. A people committed to Christian principles. I love the verse in 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. I love the promise that it carries if my people... God's talking. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven 
and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Do you think that God's still God today? Do you think that truth is still truth today? It's in the hands of God's people. There is hope. Our hope lies with God. I want to say to you today, though, there is hope for this church. There is hope for this country. There is hope that lies in the hands of Almighty God. But it begins here at this time. If there's any hope for our lands today, that hope will be found through God's people. Note the conditions and the promise of this verse. My people, called by my name, if they, God's people, will humble themselves, and if they will pray, and if they will seek His face, and if they will turn from their wicked ways, He will hear from heaven. He will forgive their sin. He will heal their land. This land will never, nor any other nation, ever be healed by society, by the government, whoever that we put there. If healing is to come, it will come at the hand of God's people that are willing to humble themselves before that God, to pray, to seek His face, to turn from their wicked ways. God's still God. That promise is still God's promise. And yet, that verse plainly begins with that big little word, if, if. God's people will do this. Then and only then can the land be healed. People need to be committed to Christian principles and to a Christless people. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things, Whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. How committed are we? You see, we may as well forget. There's no point in us asking, how committed is that church down the street or that church up the street? How committed is this church in that land or that? I'm saying, how committed are we here today to winning the lost for Christ? How committed are we to witness on the job? To witness in the schools? To witness to our neighbors, to our friends, to our enemies? To witness to the Christless people that are around us every day that we breathe? How committed are we to do it today? How committed are we to try in whatever way we can to reach out with the truth. How important, how important is that to us? How important is it? How many of us will turn up next Saturday in the cold maybe to get out there and to pass out tracts and to be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ? Or how many will have something that is more important to do? I'm not saying that to be mean. I'm saying how committed are we to the Christless people that are around us all the time. How committed are we as individuals? How committed are we as a church? Or what is it 
that's more important to us today, that takes a higher priority, that is higher on our list of commitments, what's more important today than that person hearing the gospel? As I ask you these questions in closing, what do you think would genuinely happen to Bethel Free Baptist Church, to our church. We can't, we can't do anything about anybody else's church. What do you think would really happen to our church if everyone that God has sent here would genuinely commit themselves to this work even for just this day, this week, this year? Right now, at this time, while God has us here, what do you think would be the result if we all had that kind of commitment? What do you think would happen to our church if every believer here this morning, just the ones of us that are here today, would commit by God's grace that the highest commitment on our list this year was going to be to win at least one soul to Christ starting now at this time today. Everything that we can to win somebody to Christ. Where would we be this time next year if every one of us had somebody sitting here with us that we'd had the privilege to win to Christ this year? How committed are we? What do you think? would happen to this city. Just this city that you and I live in. If just those in this city that claim to be or even are, are, are genuine Christians, genuine believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, if everybody in this city that was a true believer would be committed enough to win one person to Christ this next year, what do you think would happen to this city? If those of us that are left in this nation that truly are God's people, if we were to put into practice just these two verses in our lives, 2 Chronicles 7, 14 and Matthew 28, 19 and 20, just those two, if we were committed enough to make those two verses a priority in our life, what do you think would happen to this church, to this city, to this nation? Folks, we don't need to lose heart. There is hope. No matter what the circumstances say, no matter what around it, for such a time as this, where's the hope that lies with God? And the hope of God's people lies with God and the hope of our church, our city, our nation is in the hands of God's people. There is great hope for such a time as this. We are a privileged people. We've got opportunities that nobody before us has had. Let's take those opportunities for who knoweth whether thou art cometh to the kingdom for such a time as this. We're here now at this time. God has a reason for you being here 
at this time, there is hope. That hope today. We need courage. We need cooperation. We need consecration. We need concern. We need commitment. Well, that's my simple message for the new year, taken from the example of Queen Esther. Folks, there's great hope. The hope is in God. That hope won't begin anywhere else out there. It'll begin here. It'll begin here with each and every one of us. Father, we thank you today. Lord, we can take great confidence in knowing, Lord, that we live in terrible times as we look around us and we see a society that, Lord, seems to have all but written you off and written you out. Father, that's been done many times in the past. The truth is, it's not society and the government and politics and all those things. The best intentions of all the people are not going to change that. It's only God's people. God's people. That's where the hope lies. Lord, we have a great hope. I pray that you would help us today. Lord, help us. Help us to be willing to, at this time, where you have placed us right here, right now, Help us, Lord, to be willing to make a difference. Help us to be committed to your cause above all others. Of course, in Christ's name we pray. Amen.